Um, I prefer date one telling the status because one, if you are a person who is phobic or are a person who, then we could just be done with it. Like I, I haven't now built up myself to really liking you yeah. several months and then I tell you, and then now my heart is crushed. I've gotten to a place where my heart cannot be crushed on date one. Mm -hmm. Like. Mm -hmm. You could not crush my heart on day one. Right. So um, I prefer to, but I also think that in being able to to say it on date one, that is something then that means you have to do some internal work to be comfortable with your status being out there. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Queerly Black Show. I'm your host, Ashley, and I'm so happy you came by. The Queerly Black Show aims to normalize the everyday existence of Black, LGBTQIA plus individuals through an interview-style series with regular folks like you and me. So every week, a new guest shares their story and unique perspective on their existence as an LGBTQIA plus individual. Thank you for tuning in, and make sure you subscribe, download, set your reminders to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Queerly Black Show. I'm your host, Ashley. I'm joined today by a guy who really honestly doesn't need an introduction, but, you know, I'll introduce him for those who may have been living under a rock. George M. Johnson's in the building, y'all. George, tell the people about yourself. Hi, I'm George M. Johnson. I am the New York Times bestselling author of the book called All Boys Aren't Blue, um, as well as the book called We Are Not Broken. I've uh, been a journalist for many years, uh, involved in activism, specifically around uh, the HIV epidemic, as well as uh, LGBTQ community, Black queer people. Um, I talk on a myriad of topics and a myriad of things, uh, and also going into film and television work. Yeah, man. And you're from Jersey. <laughs> I'm from Jersey. Y'all know I'm proud from I'm proud to be from Jersey. So anytime there's a, a Jersey uh native in here, I always gotta make sure we show some love. So we love that. Um so you know, like we do on this thing, we gotta go back to the beginning, man. When did you know that you, you know, that the boys was, you know what I'm saying, was what it was, man. Let's talk about it. <laughs> oh God. Uh the beginning. Um, you know, I knew it, I knew by the time I was five, that like I was different and that my attractions weren't matching what everybody else's attractions were around me. Um, I remember like the first person I ever was attracted to was a tomboy um, in my kindergarten class. And uh, to me, that was like the only way I could make sense of like Valentine's Day and, you know, any of those like things as a very, very little kid when you would exchange cards and all of that type of stuff. and the social conditioning of, you know, heteronorms was being played out uh, before us. Um, but, you know, by the time I got to around like nine or 10, I definitely knew like, okay, like I have an attraction towards uh, the same sex. Um, didn't know what that meant, didn't really have the language to explain it, you know, didn't really know anybody else around me that may have felt that same way. So uh, just was kind of like an isolated world that I was living in trying to really piece together like what it was that I was going through and what it was that I was dealing with. But yeah, I knew from a very young age that um, my, that I was queer. <laughs> yeah, and the tomboy thing, that makes a lot of sense too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was your, uh, your journey through just like, um, you know, high school and coming out and, um, you know, talking to whoever those people were that you had to, you know, the list, like who, yeah. you know, what was that for you and, and going through that process? 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, like in high school, I just suppressed it as best I could. Like I was always like effeminate, kind of like quick witted, sassy. So it really wasn't like as much about trying to like be masculine because that just was something that was not innate to me um as much as it was just like well i'm just not going to identify as anything right now um so i went to prom with a girl um who was a friend of a friend uh i then went to college and i was in college though for several years before i really explored like my sexuality it wasn't until i was 20 that i first like really started to be like okay like this is what it is and you need to now kind of figure out what this path is going to look like uh, as you explore it um I was fortunate enough, and I do mean I was fortunate enough that when I uh, joined my fraternity, um, Alpha Phi Alpha, that I, I had a few line brothers who were also, uh, who also identified as gay. And so they became my gateway into uh, that space. They became my gateway into like the first people who took me to a club and the first people who took me to a bar and the first people who took me to pride. And so um, that was really my introduction was that I had, you know, started to have a group of friends who had already kind of explored their sexuality some, even if they weren't like fully out, like they were out to other people in a way yeah. that I wasn't. And it allowed me to start being, and I, I'm not even gonna say out public with other people. And it allowed me to start then, you know, slowly but surely becoming public with my friends first and then becoming public with the world about it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all, I'm, it definitely community is like super important and it makes it makes that that uh, that transition much, much easier. Um, so for you, what what were when was those what were those moments like when you kind of were gaining your confidence to be yourself fully like what were you know the mind like your what was kind of going through your mind and like what were some of those things that were helping you get that confidence? Yeah, you know, for me, a lot of the things that were going through my mind was um, one, I, I had a, a growing friend circle and I was watching them explore more and more at the time, like I was living in Richmond, Virginia, I lived in Richmond, Virginia up until I was about 27. So Richmond, although it had a, it had a very, very, very small gay scene. Um, and so it wasn't a whole lot to do in Richmond. It wasn't a whole lot to see. So like, we were all pretty insular. We all pretty much frequented the heterosexual bars and uh, things like that. And so, you know, um, it wasn't until I moved to Washington DC when I was 27 that I really was opened up to like the world of like, what mm -hmm. like, and so- Jacqueline City. <laughs> yeah, so like DC was really like my first, like that's where I met my best friend Preston Mitchum who, at that point had, we, we call him the mayor of DC. Cause like at that point he, he was, he was very well known, very popular with everybody and introduced me to a lot of people. And that was like really when I started to build out what that life would look like for me. Um, and so it really is, there's a lot of truth in the fact of like, once you like build a village around you, like you, you start to like see things. And so like, there was like a friend group that we had that used to watch Scandal and how to get away with murder every oh, yes. uh, week together. Good old days. Um, and so it was great. Like it was really, really great, really, really amazing. And um, that was really when I started to come out of my shell and like find what my own identity was um, privately and publicly. Yeah. 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 Nice. And today you sit as a New York Times bestseller. Yes. <laughs> How do we get to that place? Um, talk about the arrival to writing the book, All Boys Aren't Blue. Yeah, so you know, I was doing journalism for some years, uh, 
2014 was like when I had my first ever like published article, um, even though I had started writing in 2013. So I've been doing it for about a decade now. Um, and I really built myself up in the world of journalism and I had written for like 50 different, you know, national publications and had, you know, the team votes. I had been a columnist at several places. Like I was really doing very well for myself um, in the world of uh, journalism. And I just got to a point where I felt like telling my story in bits and pieces wasn't enough. Like I needed to do more. I needed to figure out like, um, how do I like how do I get this message out here in a much larger way in a much more profound way in a much more complete way to not only help the teen reader who is looking for this information, but the adult who's like me who still has a lot of stuff to get off their chest. Um, and that was really and I was also noticing like there was a, a wave it felt like of like deaths happening within community around young black and and uh latinx uh lgbtq uh kids uh giovanni melton is the one that always sticks out at the top of my mind he was killed by his father mm -hmm. um and i just remember that story sat really really heavy on me about like how homophobia is what got him killed by his own parent and uh i just knew i needed to do something that was larger than than just the the articles that I was writing, and even larger than just the the the, the life I was living publicly for people to see uh, with my family, uh, and that was really the catalyst for writing the book. Yeah, yeah. So in the book, this is your memoir. So this is your this is your story. Um, what what are some of the things that you talk about uh, in the book? Yeah, the book goes through a myriad of things. It talks about one, I think the most important things it really talks about is black family and how yes. I was <clears throat> fortunate enough to grow up in a black family that really loved and affirmed me despite, I don't want to say if it's despite, they just loved and confirmed me unconditionally um, in the face of a society that told them that uh, a person like me needed to be changed or a person like me needed to uh, be heterosexual and and should be demonized uh, as a sin because you know we're church going people and like they just ignored all of that type of rhetoric and just like loved and poured poured into me. Um, that that. What up? It's your host Ashley, and I'm interrupting this podcast to ask: Are you following us? Have you downloaded the podcast? Are you subscribed to us on YouTube? If you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on all platforms, Queerly Black. I'm going to let y'all get back to the show. Peace. I think it's at the heart of the book, but I really think it still is about like a journey of a young Black queer kid who goes from a place of not even knowing what it is, not having the language to know what they are. Um, and you watch, you know, the, the fact that even if you still have a lot of love at home, it doesn't prevent what society does to you once you leave the house every day. And so you're watching me navigate a home life, but navigate a world that is still, I still can see and I'm still being triggered and I'm still dealing with the intersection of racism and homophobia and both at the same time. And so, um, but you watch that journey of me going through uh, adolescence and then like basically finding my own strength, finding my own voice, uh, becoming much more comfortable with myself by the age of 21, which is where the book ends. Um, you know, so, so you see what the journey, the journey, like the actual journey, and you, you see that the journey is not linear and it, it has its peaks and it has its valleys. And, you know, uh, I think that's really what, what is at the heart of the book, like that the journey of queerness is one that is ever going and not linear.
Yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things you touched on that I think is super critical, me and my wife talk about this all the time, is language and how, you know, you're a journalist. So obviously, like, language is at the heart of, of, of what you do. But a lot of times when people are uncomfortable with this, you know, with us coming out and us getting married and having children and all these, you know, normal things, it's because they don't have the language to explain it to people is, is they don't know like what to say, like yeah. what, do, what do I, it, and here, here's, here's, let me, let me take it a step further. They know what to say. Yeah. They're not comfortable saying it. Right. So they need different words to describe whatever it is. So it's, it's easier for someone to say, oh, that's, that's my daughter's partner. Then that's my daughter's wife right? It's easier for them to say, oh, uh, you know, yeah, they, they, they live together in, uh, you know, that yeah. house versus, yeah, they're married and they live together in that house, right? Like, that's such a, we learned as we've kind of progressed and gotten married and had kids and had a house and all these things that a lot of times for people not, they don't under, they don't have the words that make them comfortable to describe what's happening like they, they they just don't have the words um and so I think that's that's definitely a, a big thing and sometimes even as the queer person you don't have the language that Absolutely. you feel comfortable with you know um Absolutely. because we are you know in the black family I like you was blessed to grow up in a family that was you know very accepting I wouldn't say affirming and like oh go like I, I wouldn't call it that but just that it wasn't a thing like it wasn't like this every time we're together we got to talk about it but um they it wasn't demonized either you know and so um but in black families we have a lot of internalized homophobia there's a lot of you know self-hatred that happens because of the language you hear growing up the things that you hear the things that people say the you know the way that people describe things and so you grow up and you're like man like I'm not even comfortable with this I'm not even comfortable describing this I'm not even you know comfortable saying it not that you don't love yourself or that you hate yourself you just can't do it just you just can't express it you know and so I think language is something that we definitely um don't talk enough about and so I think it's really cool that uh you know you wrote the book and it it gives another perspective in another way for people to relate to um kind of you know an experience you know that they may have um one of the things that you're very uh open about and we just are coming off of world world AIDS day is being HIV um you know positive and um you know that being something that's not um stigmatized anymore you know like we're we're getting away from like this being you know the 70s and 80s and like you know when people didn't have language or didn't have understanding research all these things um and and I love you know what you're doing around that space so talk about your journey to that being something that you feel you know comfortable talking about um and something that is now um having a lot more proactive conversation around you know, the whole, the whole topic. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's, it's still a touchy subject for a lot of people. Um, Cause a lot of people are still being diagnosed as HIV positive. And they're, I, I always say like a lot of people are um, like stigma still exists. You know, it may not look like what the epidemic looked like of the eighties and the nineties um, and even the early two thousands before yeah. available, but it is still a very, the, the thoughts and the fears and the the many uh, 
societal constructs of the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s are still with us today. So it is still very heavily criminalized um, in, in over 30 states. There are still HIV criminalization laws where a person could go to jail for what's called the risk of exposure, um, despite people being on treatment, despite people being undetectable and unable to transmit the virus. And so like you're having like this battle between old politics and new science uh, that we're still fighting. Uh, for me, it just was one of those things where I just didn't, I, I don't know, I just don't want anybody to like ever be able to to like use something against me yeah. the way, you know? So I'm always like, I'm always tell my own tea. Like yeah. I think like, mm -hmm. I just kind of like, decided to exist like i'll just spill my own tea before anybody else can or anybody else thinks they have a, a one-up on me on something mm -hmm. and i just got to a point where i was like you know what like i really think that we don't have enough people uh who are publicly advocating as living with hiv um so that others can see an example and have a possibility model of what it what it can be in this world yeah um you know a lot of I have a lot of friends who are HIV positive, but they they live with it privately, and I respect that. And you know, I think the ultimate goal is to get to a place though where people don't feel like they have to live with it privately. Like if it's a choice that you want to, that's cool. But I do know there are some people who wish that they could say it and wish that they could tell their parents or wish that they could tell their friends, but they feel that there's going to be a, a stigma attached, yeah. to it. and that's the part that I'm still fighting for for people. Um, is because I want them to be able to live freely, uh, and and it and it becomes a discriminatory thing, right? Yeah. Like, still discriminate against people who are living with HIV, um, especially when it comes to dating. Like people may not say it publicly, but they they do. Some people do have issues with trying to date someone who's HIV positive and would never say it publicly because of fear of like a backlash or fear of thing. But then some of them do say it, and it's just like, well, when when do we ever get to this place where? um you know we trust the science and that we trust one another uh in that space that we're protecting one another uh so it's it's something that's really near and dear to my heart um i love doing that type of work i love being an example for so many people um i love the fact that me being ex an example has helped so many people get on treatment has helped so many people uh understand that there is life after diagnosis and understand that you know their diagnosis is just one small part of them and that they yeah. have so many other i have so many other facets to me and that hiv is just a part of who i am but it is not at the center of everything that i am yeah um you also talk about just you know when you're dating and just being open about it um <clears throat> what um why is that important yeah i mean we i, I want to show different models of dating i want to show non-toxic models of dating that I want, part <laughs> yeah you know i think you know sometimes like social media warps people's minds into um the fantasy of being with the person versus what the reality is of being with the person so i try to be as transparent about what my life actually looks like not like put up some facade of what it looks like so that people really do understand what it means when you actually are, are let's say dating a public figure or dating someone who's hiv positive or and i talk about it i talk about like some of the conversations i've had in previous times i've dated people um because there there's still a lack of education that that is out there we know there's a lack of education because every now and then some somebody with a really big platform says something about hiv that is so outdated that you're just like how do how do people still not know that this is not 1991 right 94 like like people are still spouting information right? not in the magic johnson days y'all 
mm-hmm. and you still, <laughs> you know, like at the height of everything, right? Like, you know, when the fear was at at, at the highest and, and you still hear people say like terms like full-blown AIDS and it's like, well, well no. Is- <laughs> it's like you wouldn't, like, it's just like you wouldn't say a person had full-blown cancer, right? Like right, right. have cancer or a person has had the designation, the, the has been, uh, I guess you could say diagnosed, diagnosed yeah. AIDS, but that's really just uh the uh, advancing that's advanced HIV is really what yeah. it is because a person who gets that category to that category can also get on treatment mm-hmm. and even though they won't change the designation of you being someone who has AIDS you literally are still you can have a high T cell count you can have uh you know um and no and be undetectable but at one point we're classified as this right so it's a classification that you can just same way as, as cancer is a classification that you can go from stage four down right or stage mm-hmm. mission right like so and and that's but that's the lack of education that's out there and so mm-hmm. that is something that you know I, I try to continue to work on is making sure that the people are educated about what it actually is versus uh the the perception of 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 yesteryear that we're trying to you know advance us from stigma wise yeah for sure um so just going back to language again right so there's a the person out there that's HIV positive and they're dating. Mm. What are some of the sentences that they can use, right, in having a conversation with maybe somebody who's not HIV positive or maybe they are too, right? And they're just not, there's just an uncomfortability there, right? What are some of those sentences that they can have in their toolkit to have that exchange with a person who maybe have some hesitation about um, taking their relationship further? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's a very interesting question because I think there are two approaches to it that I've seen. Like one is where a person will date someone first for some time before um, having the, the conversation around their status. And then you have people like me where date one, I'm going to tell you my status. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer date one telling the status because one, if you are a person who is phobic or are a person who, then we could just be done with it. Like I, I haven't now built up myself to really liking you yeah. several times and then I tell you, and then now my heart is crushed. I've gotten to a place where my heart cannot be crushed on date one. Mm-hmm. Like, Mm-hmm. You could not crush my heart on day one. Right. So um, I prefer to, but I also think that in being able to to say it on date one, that is something then that means you have to do some internal work to be comfortable with your status being out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always say become comfortable first with, with your status. Like before trying to even enter the dating space, like make sure you are comfortable with disclosing that information. Um, you know, to potentially someone who may be a stranger, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I'm comfortable with it. I wear hoodies and sweatshirts that say, you know, HIV, um, what is it? HIV Lives Matter and like, all, you know, so people know. Yeah. I'm not afraid mm-hmm. to say it. Everybody's not there yet. Um, <clears throat> two, I think, you know, when you're having those conversations, especially like in dating, you know, there's nothing wrong with, especially within our community, asking a person what is their status, because they're only going to give you one of three responses, I'm positive, I'm negative, or, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to have that discussion with you yet. All three answers are fine. Mm-hmm. They're not ready to have a discussion with you yet. Okay, cool. And then you just move on. And, and then if y'all keep going, then at some point you have to get to that discussion, right? Prior yeah. to 
you know, sexual uh, interaction. And so I think that's really what what it really boils down to. Um, Cause it isn't like there, there needs to be like a whole lot of questions being asked. It really is just the one question, which right. is, you know, what is your, you know, what's your HIV status? And um, I just like to get it out the way, but you know, I don't even ask it sometimes because somewhere in conversation, I'm gonna say it. <laughs> I'm gonna say what my status is. Yeah find that place that put it in there <laughs> put it in and you make it work and then you just go yeah, That's how yeah. I always operate it it's worked out best for me um and again if a person doesn't want to be with someone you know who's HIV positive you know it's their loss um you know and we always see that question pop up like would you date someone HIV positive and it's like well would somebody HIV positive date you like right 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 they they have a choice too <laughs> it's not just like <laughs> That's the They're not disabled people. or handicapped. Like, what are you talking yeah, and about? And I want to be clear, like, you know, because though, like, but also like HIV is still classified as a disability. So, you know, the, you know, for, for the, um, for, for certain things, right? Like it is still seen as a disability because everybody's not undetectable, right? And so mm, right. many people still do have complications with HIV, especially long-term survivors of it. Um, but again, it is also to say, um, I still have a choice in who I right. I still get the, I can still be selective about who I want to be. I want to be too. <laughs> someone as narrow-minded as you is not someone who we may want to even interact with anyway to begin right, with. Right, right. For sure. Um, so let's talk about fashion. <laughs> you fly, man. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Thank how, you. Uh, how'd you get into fashion and like what um, kind of, what draw, I, I love like, you know, that whole that whole thing just like you know putting on that fly shit like getting yeah. into it like i love it you know so yeah. what where did that come from for you yeah you know i've always had my own individual sense of of style i don't know if it matches like what mainstream would like but i've always had my own way of dressing that is comfortable to me i think though one of the things that i wanted to be intentional about especially once i uh started to become a little bit more public but also as an author was just like you know i wanted i want people to see like that authors and writers can also be at the intersection of many different spaces right so not just television and film or not just publishing but also television and film but also branding also commercial also modeling also fashion like i wanted just show like how, how all the spaces can interact because I express my art and my creativity through my writing, but I also want to express my art and creativity through style and the things that I like to wear and the things that I like to show off in. Um, so I work with uh, Shannon Stokes, who's my stylist, and it's been a wonderful relationship where we have uh, learned what works for me, what doesn't work for me. Um, where he's pushed my boundaries uh, into things where I'm like, I don't know if I would ever choose that. But, you know, I, I put it on and I look and I'm like, you know what, I think this works, but this doesn't work. Or I think this works, but I don't know if I like this. Um, and it really does become like a collaborative effort around ensuring that I have my own sense of unique style uh, while also still being on trend. <laughs> on trend. <laughs> on trend at times. Um, but yeah, the biggest thing for me is like, I just wanted to express the versatility of fashion. And so I have worn um, 
non-binary attire and dresses and i have also worn you know suits that are very fitted or suits that are very loose i've worn oversized um i do hats at time i do like i, I just want to show that there's like streetwear like I, I show a versatility of the range of what what fashion can be um and i think it's really really cool because now fashion is starting to intersect a space where a lot of people weren't used to it like in publishing like that wasn't like a thing that people look to but now you know I think it allows the creativity just allows other authors to be like oh you know what like this is kind of dope like there is a, a space for us outside of just the writing to also show uh, our creativity through what we wear and how we express ourselves yeah for sure no I, I, I love it I like I'm like this dude is too fly like what <laughs> he got that shit on boy like I, I love it I love fashion I love you know seeing people um, you know, dressed up. I follow a ton of like those type of pages where people just not that they're even like fashion influencers, but just that they, you know, um, take so much care in their image and like the, you know, just I just love it. I, I love it. I think it's dope. Um, tell the people what they can expect from you. 2023. <laughs> yes, 2023. I have no books coming out, so <laughs> I'm expecting another book. Mm. We're going to work the, 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 the two books that are out there. I want to work those. Um, but I do, I am working on the next books. Uh, so, you know, 2024, you can expect a book or maybe two. Uh, in 2025, you can expect the book as well, which we haven't announced yet, but it will be a very, very big announcement once that happens in a couple of weeks. Um, I am also working on developing All Boys Aren't Blue into a television show. Me and Gabrielle Union are still actively working that project together. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, I am also building a podcast around banned books. Uh, I think the banned book curriculum issue is super important and one that is not being talked about enough. And so I want to now build the space out where we can have those conversations with the other Black authors the way that uh, Nikki Giovanni and Baldwin used to. I think that that is something that is missing from today's society is that we have so many brilliant Black authors, but they don't get to be in conversation with each other anymore about topics. Um, and I want to bring that back. Uh, more fashion, of course, because uh, I'm sure there will be plenty of red carpets for me to walk. And mm -hmm. so I'm excited about where we're going to take the fashion journey this year. Um, yeah, like that's that's pretty much it. And just really trying to expand uh, my writing in a myriad of ways outside of just publishing. So maybe music, maybe writing in, uh, you know, definitely doing television and film writing, but documentary, um, just other spaces where I know that my voice is needed is where I'm trying to go. I love it, man. Love it. Well, we're going to play a quick game of this okay. or that before we get out of here. <laughs> this or that. Huh? That is, what's, what's it called? This or that. So this you got to pick one. Okay. All right. Laundry or cooking? Oh, cooking. Boxers or briefs? Well, really, it's boxer briefs. But boxer briefs. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. I'm like, I ain't wore a pair of boxers or a pair of briefs. <laughs> I only wear boxer briefs. Oh, boxer briefs. Uh, day at the spa or watching sports all day? Oh, that's a good one. Um, ooh, in the past, I would have said watching sports all day, but now. It's day at the spa. <laughs> Short hair or long hair? Long hair. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had it. <laughs> yeah. Beard or no beard? No beard. New shoes, new clothes. Uh, new clothes. Jewelry or handbag? 
Oh, handbag. <laughs> Sports car or a big truck? That's interesting. Uh, sports car. Big wedding or small ceremony? Uh, big wedding. Stay up late or sleep in? <sighs> sleep in. Iron or redry it? Redry it. <laughs> <laughs> what is with this redry stuff? With a tennis ball, okay, a tennis ball <laughs> and a damp rag. Just and let that thing tumble for a couple minutes. Pay or have him pay? Should be nice to have him pay. You have have him pay. <laughs> have him pay. I pay enough. <laughs> and last but not least, top or bottom. Ah! <laughs> I'll say bottom. Hey, <laughs> I will be coy, but I'll I'm in that space this year. So I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you, George. So uh, tell the people where they can find you. Yes, uh, you can find me at I am Jam Johnson on TikTok, on Instagram, on Twitter, until Twitter goes away at some point, um, and George M. Johnson on Facebook. Nice, man. Well, thank you so much for coming through. Definitely appreciate you sharing your story. And y'all already know, this is another episode of the Queerly Black Show. I'm your host, Ashley. I'll catch y'all on the next one. Peace. Yeah. <laughs>